Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Today we're talking about how to move on after experiencing loss. Our guest is Hannah Jones of Ohio, who shares how she encountered SGI Nichiren Buddhism while in high school and how it helped her navigate the loss of her best friend, her older brother, and ultimately find a way back to her dreams. Here's Hannah. Hi, I'm Hannah Jones. I just turned 26 and uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and I work as a licensed esthetician. Awesome. So I understand that you started practicing Buddhism at a pretty young age and independently. So if you don't mind sharing the story of kind of how did you discover SGI Nichiren Buddhism and then what made you interested and, and why did you start practicing? Yes. So when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school. And I remember I was put into this world history class that was like full of students. And I was so nervous. Um, And thankfully, I actually had my name called with just a very small group of people. And we were taken to a different classroom um, where the teacher was just more focused on working students um, and just helping work-life balance. So there was like less than 10 of us. And when we got to the topic of world religion, actually, he said, my mom is Buddhist. I want to bring her in to talk to you guys about Buddhism. And at the time, I mean, I went to a very small school um, and everyone was very similar. There wasn't a lot of diversity. Um, And so I was like, Buddhism, wow, that sounds amazing. You know, what a concept. And so she came in and she started talking to us about Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and she would pass out all these cards and I'm like, I have no idea what this is or what she's telling us. But what resonated with me was that she was telling us all of her struggles in the beginning and how Nam-myoho-renge-kyo got her through these struggles. That's all the connection I really made. Um, and so she kind of gave us a short introductory, um, gave us, you know, examples of how this practice has helped her. And then she left and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, (laughs) and, um, so it was very out of nature for me to go out of my way to like contact somebody I really didn't know, but I decided to call her and I was like, please take me to one of those meetings that you talked to us about. And so I didn't drive at the time either. So she came and picked me up and took me to one of these um, local meetings for the SGI. And then I I, I never stopped going actually from that moment on. Um, And so some of the members like within SGI thought I was doing it for school purposes. Um, But no, I was actually just really interested in the practice. Huh. That's yeah, what an interesting introduction. Um, And for context, like, what was sort of going on in your personal life at the time? Like, were you already sort of seeking something that kind of sparked this interest in Buddhism? Or was it just purely like, I want to know about this philosophy, because I'm just a little intellectually curious about it? You know what I mean? Yes, definitely a little bit of both. I love to learn about everything. But for me, so I was 
a senior in high school where I attended my home school half the day and I attended a career tech school the other half of the day for cosmetology. And then I played one or two sports year round. And then I also had a job on the weekends. And then I shortly later would pick up another job. So I had all of these different things going on in my life uh, constantly. Um, And then my home life was also just pretty chaotic too. So I think I was constantly like looking for things to keep me busy, keep me kind of like stimulated. Um, And so, yeah, I think I first saw this practice or maybe was interested in this practice just because I was like, I have a lot of things going on in my life and I have a lot of goals that I want to reach. But then I would soon find out that um, the practice would kind of open a really... I don't know, maybe a deeper understanding for the more chaotic problems I was facing growing up. Hmm. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's starting to make sense. And, and I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but then uh, it, tell me about the actual experience of trying chanting. So, so you meet this woman, you're like, I want to go to a Buddhist meeting. Um, and then you, I assume, started chanting. So like, how did it feel like what were those kind of like early early experiences like yeah um so I remember walking into one of my first meetings um and it was a larger one and so everyone in the room is like chanting nam myoho renge kyo and I I truthfully and honestly remember walking into the room thinking like what did I get myself into because (laughs) I've never heard or seen this before Um, but I remember distinctly that everyone looked so different from one another, ages, um, ethnicities, genders. I mean, everyone was so different, but so united. And that was like, this is amazing. Um, and so I only really chanted when I would be with the members, like at the small meetings or the big meetings, because I didn't know how to do it by myself. <laughs> I really needed the encouragement from other people. Um, but when I was encouraged to go home and just chant by myself, I would look up YouTube videos like how to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And I would follow along with the videos. And now we have this wonderful app that really helps guide you through. Um, And so that's what I did. And um, I just first focused on how to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo kind of before I started setting like goals. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, that makes total, total sense. Um, I think many people have had that experience, just just like learning to chant and starting to build it into your routine takes time. Um, But then did you like see differences in your life then once you started chanting in terms of how you felt or things going on around you or things you're pursuing? Definitely. I feel like I had so many experiences. Um, But I think one of the biggest things that I saw immediately was um, this newfound courage, because like I said, I really wouldn't go out of my way to um, meet new people or explore new ideas. Uh, And because I lived in such a small town, I really didn't have a driver's license. And at the time, I was so scared of driving. I would not 
want to be in the driver's seat. And so I really set a goal through this practice to obtain my driver's license. And so I set a date and a time and I was able to accomplish it that day um, that I set it for. And then just a few weeks after my goal was, okay, now I need a car because what good is a driver's license? (laughs) And so, um, then I was really encouraged to, you know, chant for the best possible outcome for a car. And so I told my dad exactly what I wanted and how I was going to get it. And so we went to the dealer and my dad said, this is not the last place that we are going. Like we're looking elsewhere. And I was like, no, we're not. This is where my car is. (laughs) You know, I was so (laughs) determined. And so we sat down and they had exactly what I wanted. And the whatever was going on at the time um, was like 0% interest, no money down. And my dad was like, I really don't think we're going to qualify. He was like so worried. And I was like, we are absolutely going to qualify. This is what is supposed to happen. You know, I'm sure of it. And so the guy was like, yeah, everything looks great. And so I got the car that I wanted at the price that I wanted um, and payments that I could, you know, financially afford. Um, And so, yep, we definitely left that dealership that day (laughs) with the car that I wanted. (laughs) Um, And so I think those were some of my very early examples um, is just this newfound courage and ability to see that I can set goals and obtain them. Yeah, I love how real that is, because I think, you know, sometimes like when we think about Buddhism as being this like profound journey of like so much opening in your life, which it is, which I know we'll talk about, too. You know, it's like it's totally okay to just bring the challenges of daily life to your practice and use it to kind of build a a fulfilling and um yeah, just a, a fulfilling and, and practical and successful daily life. So I, I love that those were your earliest experiences because people do often ask, like, what do you chant about? You know, like, what goal should I set? And it could just be that, like, whatever's in front of you. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so you already sort of alluded to this, um, discovering how to deal with a kind of chaotic upbringing and home situation. So maybe we can start there. If you don't mind sharing kind of a little bit more about just context, like how how did you grow up and how did sort of your your inner life or your home life like enter into your Buddhist practice, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely context. I grew up in a a small suburb of Columbus. It's one of the more wealthy suburbs, top school district in central Ohio. Um, But I grew up in a small three-bedroom apartment with my parents and my two siblings, my brother and my sister. Um, And so I'm the youngest of the three. And so that in itself, I think, was uh, kind of some inner turmoil is like a lot of my friends had these really big houses and, um, you know, were very smart. And I felt like I constantly had to like work really hard to get the same grades that like other kids got. And I was like constantly trying to prove myself because I felt less than, and now I, I I don't feel that way. And I appreciate my family so much, but, um, my parents were like constantly fighting. My siblings were constantly fighting. And I'm just like in the corner, like, what is happening? You know, why 
is all of this stress. And so actually when I brought this practice home, each family member kind of reacted a little bit differently. So um, I grew up, my parents both kind of came from Italian Catholic backgrounds. But when I brought this Buddhism home, my mom was sad because she's like, I wish I would have raised you guys to be Catholic. Like, I wish I was a better Catholic to raise you guys that way is kind of her stance. And she was very kind of upset about that. My dad didn't care. He supports me like whatever I want to do, do it as long as it doesn't hurt yourself, you know. Um, Same thing with my sister. She's very supportive. And then my brother. So I thought he would be the most interested because me and him definitely love to explore these different topics and he was not happy with it for some reason. Um, And so that I think became a driving force for me to kind of prove him wrong too. (laughs) Cause I was like, no, this is great. Look at these people and you know, look how happy everyone is. And so I think that was a shift for me also to really continue chanting for my family. (laughs) Yeah, you have so much courage at such a young age. I don't know that like I could have just chosen a religion completely outside of how I was raised (laughs) and just been like, okay, guys, this is what's happening. So yeah, it's really encouraging, honestly. Um, so, So do you feel like once you started practicing and these kind of things started happening where it sounds like your own kind of faith in yourself and your own courage and the practice grew because you started having experiences like you shared, right? Um, Did your family sort of see a change too? Like what was their experience, not just of the introduction of this new practice, but of like what was happening to you, if that makes sense? Yeah. So like I said, I really can like I started practicing because I could see things that I could obtain, right? Like physically. But um, what I noticed when I saw like my mom's reaction and everything is that you can use this practice to fundamentally change relationships. And so I think one of the best experiences that I've had was I went from, you know, my mom being, you know, upset that she didn't raise us Catholic to um, loving the members that she would meet. She'd be like, oh, how so-and-so doing? Oh, I miss seeing so-and-so, you know, just talking about the members all the time. And then um, one year for my birthday, I opened up my cake and it had sunflowers all over it. And it said, nam myoho renge kyo. And I was like, mom, how did you do this? And she was like, oh, I went looking for, you know, one of your publications. Um, and it said, nam myoho renge kyo somewhere on there. So she's she's like, so that's how I knew how to spell it. So she's all of a sudden became so supportive. And um, she would even say like, oh, can you chant for my friend or your uncle or like whoever was suffering at the time? Um, So a lot of different moments with my family of even though I practiced to obtain something, um, these familial relationships started to shift. And that was very eye-opening to me because I think just being born into a very um, chaotic situation, you think these are the cards I was dealt and this is what Mm -hmm. I have to live with and these are my circumstances and this is my family. So it is what it is. And I think that's why I had to kind of be the change. 
Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to put it. Um, and, and it reminds me of um, this. I mean, I'm sure you've heard, you know, like in Buddhism, we say that really only one person in the family needs to practice, though. I mean, of course, in, in some families, many people choose to start chanting. But in other families, it really is just one person. And that person can illuminate the whole family like the sun. It, it sounds like that's exactly what you're you're describing. Um, uh so, okay, so, you know, we, you also alluded to this a little bit because I, I understand that sort of um, your relationship with your brother um, was very special and in terms of your practice and in other ways um, and that I and I understand that you've experienced loss. Um, so as much as you're comfortable sharing, since I know this is kind of a key part of the, the story, can you share a sort of, of what happened and yeah, how did you use your Buddhist practice to sort of navigate it? Yes, definitely. Um, my brother uh, has been my biggest challenge <laughs> in my life <laughs> and in this practice in the best possible way. He is such an amazing and special person. Um, so he passed away um, October of 2018. He had turned 28 on October 14th and he passed away on October 19th. And so he had struggled for a long time with mental health and addiction. And even as a child, I mean, just a lot of problems that I couldn't understand. Um, he was in and out of the hospital with like Crohn's disease and um, he was diagnosed with like um, severe depression and my parents could never get him to go to school. So he tried online school and he still wouldn't do that until eventually he ended up dropping out of school. And so that in itself, I think was a little bit of a struggle for me too, because I just saw this like wonderfully like creative person. Like he never had to be school smart for me to like really admire and look up to him because the writings that he would do, he was artistic, like all of these amazing things that I saw about him, maybe other people didn't see because teachers would be like, oh, why isn't Tyler coming to school? Or, you know, just, oh, have you seen what your brother's doing? You know, I would hear these things, but I couldn't understand them. And so, yeah, he really started to struggle with um, alcohol and drug dependence. Um, he eventually got himself clean from like the drug aspect of it, but I think turned way more heavily into drinking. Um, so I think uh, as I was really challenging myself in my own life, um, he had moved out at the time, so I didn't know how bad he was struggling and mm -hmm. so he would come over some nights and hang out um, but then my family took a vacation just my parents and I and my brother we all went to the beach for a week and when we went down there in 2017 I noticed that he had like a surplus of alcohol at our condo and I was very shocked. Like this was the, I think the eye-opening moment for me. And it was every night and every morning, you know, shots just to get him throughout the day. And I was like, wow, Hannah, how have you been so blind to what's going on? Um, you know, how I started to feel this like immense guilt and responsibility and all of these issues that kind of come with having people in your family with alcoholism. And um, so from that moment forward, I was like, I really need to 
chant for his happiness. And I always was in the background, like chanting for his happiness and his success. But because people, you know, remove themselves, not like purposefully, but like he moved away. So it's like, I kind of had these blinders up of, you know, I didn't see what was going on daily or nightly. Um, And so I tried to encourage him very, very lightly. And so there was one night when he was laying on the living room floor and I was uh, sitting on the couch and he said, I just don't want to be here anymore. And so that for me, I was like, you don't have the right to say that you have to keep living. And he was like, I know, I'm sorry. And so that weekend I was going to uh, the Florida Nature Culture Center, which is like an SGI uh, place that we have in the Everglades. Um, maybe you can, <laughs> I don't know, elaborate on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for it's like for um, Buddhist conferences and um, yeah, just a place to, to continue kind of deep in Buddhist study if you take a weekend conference or something. But please yes. continue. So I was going to the Florida Nature Culture Center that weekend after he made that statement. And it was like a student-related conference. But then I was going there with like a deeper mission at that point because I was left on a note of kind of my brother's disparity, you know? And so I went there thinking, I now have to like fight for my brother's life. And so even though this was like a student-related conference where I took so much benefit from for my own life, every day that we had an opportunity where there wasn't activities going on or um, lectures, things like that, I would sit in front of the giant Gohonzon that's there. And I mean, it would be maybe three hours a day that I was chanting that my brother would become happy. And um, I ended up writing him a really nice letter um, telling him how much I love and care about him. And I told him, I chant for you every single day. And so I wrote this letter. I there's like a little gift shop there at the uh, culture center. And so I had picked up a magnet that says um, something along the lines of like, never give up on your dreams or go forward to your dreams or something like that. Right. And so I have this letter, I have this magnet, and then there's this beautiful little beaded bracelet and it just says SGI USA on it, just very small. And so I put all these things together and I gave it to him one night. And I remember I was like shaking because I was so nervous to like give it to him because it's so, you know, personal and I didn't know how he was going to react. And actually he didn't read the letter in front of me at all. He just took it. He just like took it. And then my mom was driving him home. And so my mom came back and she said, he read that letter and he cried actually, like the way back to his apartment. And so that's, that's the thing is like, things are happening in the background that you don't always see. And so I was chanting for him and I was trying to support him the best I could, you know, I didn't really know how I'm 20, 21, 22 years old. (laughs) And, um, so yeah, he, the next time I saw him, he had the bracelet on and actually he never stopped wearing the bracelet. Um, and Mm -hmm. so after he passed, I got the bracelet from his apartment. And so now I keep it, but the fact that he, appreciated the letter, even though he didn't tell me himself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then um, he wore the bracelet. So I knew that at this point, my practice was at least 
permeating a little piece of his life um, because he didn't, you know, reject wearing the bracelet. (laughs) Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And I think that kind of, you know, the struggle to support someone very close to you where it's really not in your control, you know, Um, it's it's a very universal struggle, I think, within families and in some cases amongst friends um, as well. So just uh, just hearing what you're saying, I feel like I'm learning kind of that spirit to not give up on a person, knowing full well that like it's not the impact that you're necessarily able to control. It's just what you decide to do and how you decide to express your care and your love in the best way that you can bring out of your life. So, um, yeah, I think for anyone who's listening who might be kind of facing a similar struggle, just those are really like wonderful examples of things that you can do that just come from your heart. And chanting allows us to to access kind of that wisdom, like what should I do, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, I, I do want to ask, and again, as much as you're comfortable sharing kind of what, what happened next, because I understand that it was not so long after that that he passed away. Yes. Yeah, so um, let's see, 2018 in October um, is when he, my parents went to his apartment in October and they weren't getting responses. And so finally, when they got into the apartment, they noticed kind of the state that he was in and he was rushed to the emergency room um, where he would be in kind of critical care for the next three weeks. And so, yeah, this whole time that he's in ICU, you know, I'm just chanting. The first week, it's kind of like, okay, he'll get better because he's been put in the hospital before and they give him some fluids and he goes home. You know, that's unfortunately the reality that we kept facing you know but he always came home and so we I was just chanting that he's okay you know he was in bad shape but they're gonna make him better and he's gonna come home and then the second week came and I was like okay I'm starting to get a little bit worried like he's not coming home um and so by the third week that's when they really started telling my parents like you know you kind of have to start making some decisions. So he actually was waiting for a liver. Like he was on a list waiting. And so he was on all these different medications and things. Um, But then they said at this point, there's no way that a liver could regrow itself in the state that he's in. And the tests on his brain were showing very low function as well. So it's like this human would, you know, essentially barely function without a lot of machines and, you know, dialysis, all of these different things, he would not be able to function. And so throughout this time, there was a member that was like wholeheartedly supporting me, calling me all the time, um, you know, hey, Hannah, how are you doing? And um, she's been through a lot similarly, um, not exactly, but enough that was very encouraging for me to keep in contact with her. And um, so the guidance that she gave me was that you need to chant, um, you need to chant for his victory, whether he lives or dies. That's what she said to me exactly. Mm-hmm. And when she said that, I broke. I just remember like bawling my eyes out. And I was like, how could you say that? How could you say that I need to chant whether he lives or dies? This practice, I'm supposed to chant for what I want. You know, that's the idea that I had. And um, 
it wasn't the case, right? So um, I chanted the way she told me to. Eventually, when I had calmed down, I was like, you're right, I need to chant for his victory, whether he lives or dies. Because as I just mentioned, if he lives, what kind of life is he going to live? What kind of victory is he going to have in this state of, you know, being constantly hospitalized and machines, all these different things. Um, But you don't want to lose the people that you love. And Mm -hmm. so I decided to chant in the way that she told me to, that no matter what, he's going to have a victory. And, oh my gosh, sorry. I just remembered like a key point that I forgot to Sure, no, no, no. We can bring it in, please. Okay, yes. So... In between the time of the culture center and him going to the hospital, um, he was staying with, with us at my parents so that he could be closely monitored because he was on a lot of medications waiting for his liver um, and everything. So he saw me leaving one day, going out the door, and I had invited him plenty of times throughout the years to our SGI meetings. But this one in particular, um, I was walking out the door and he said, Hey, Hannah. And I was like, yeah, what's, what's up? And he was like, do you think they would like me at one of those meetings? And that still like gets me very emotional today (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I think that was the moment where, um, I noticed that there has been a huge shift in my practice from coming home and him, you know, saying, Hannah, I don't want to hear about that. And I don't want to read that to now, you know, you think they would like me at one of your meetings. He's not even someone who cares about what people think about him. So I don't know why he asked that Mm -hmm. other than kind of signifying to me that he was open all of a sudden (laughs) to the idea. Um, So then I think, just a few weeks after that or a month later is when he went into critical care. Uh, He did not live, unfortunately, shortly after. um, Let's see. So October 14th was his birthday, 2018. And the whole ICU was like filled with friends and family. And they only allowed two people at the time to go back and visit. But finally they said, okay, you know, we understand what's happening. You guys can all go back. And so it's like this small cramped room with like so many friends and family, you know, holding his hand. And it was the most alert that he had been in three weeks. Um, And so it was like really beautiful to see that. And we all sang him happy birthday. And then the day after that is when he was transferred to hospice. And so then we would go and stay and visit with him in hospice, but he was already, you know, very sedated at that point. So his birthday was the last time that he was awake. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just a few days later, October 19th is when my mom and my sister discovered that he, you know, had passed. And that definitely shifted my practice a lot because I think I was pretty angry. You know, I was grieving and I was angry and Um, it was encouraging for me when we had the funeral members. I had no idea they came to his funeral. They, when they walked in, I was like, oh my gosh, these are SGI members that I I practice Buddhism with. I was like, I didn't even know you guys 
knew that this location, you know, all these things, and they were so sincere and so genuine. Um, and so no matter how I felt, like the members of the SGI were always there for me because I've made so many very close friendships and ties. And so even in my very like darkest, I think moments after that, following his death, the SGI, um, has just been such a solid foundation in the members that really started to care for me, even though my practice started to suffer from this moment. Mm. Oh my goodness. Whoa. Yeah. I think that, um, First of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm I'm sure just even going through the story is a lot. So thank you for doing it so openly. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, you know, many people do ask, like, what's the purpose of practicing with a Buddhist community instead of just chanting by yourself? Like, if, if the practice is chanting, you can just do it alone kind of thing. But it sounds like what you're what you're describing is that it is. Um, yeah, I mean, the, our practice, like, is also a journey. <laughs> no one just like decides I'm going to chant every single day and then I'm never going to think twice about it ever again and it's going to be super easy. Like no practice functions that way and having the community, you know, at times um, to receive support and at times you're the one giving support and that's what you need. Um, so yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I, I wonder, you know, I'm sure, so this was 2018 and so it's been uh, I guess a bit under four years, right? This is going to be year four since since this experience happened. Um, and I know that grief takes a different path for everybody and there's different stages, you know, for everybody. But um, how, how have you sort of come to use your practice to then process the grief and sort of make meaning from, from the whole experience? Yes. So after he passed, uh, like I said, my practice really started to suffer. I feel like I came in headstrong at 18, ready to explore this new practice and take on challenges. And then this, you know, monumental um, moment of my life happens. And that's what challenged my practice. So after he passed, I was in this relationship that was not good for me. And I will say probably not great for the other person either, um, because I was constantly miserable and unhappy. And, um, you know, just the way he treated me also was awful. Um, and so it's like, I'm dealing with grief and I'm also dealing with this person who doesn't make me feel any better. And then, um, my living situations, it's just like everything went downhill at this point. And I stopped chanting regularly. I really started to kind of disassociate from a lot of members, except for the ones that were very persistent in, you know, being my friend and encouraging me and giving me guidance. So, so thankful for them because I think they are what got me back on track. Um, and so eventually I had the courage to leave the relationship that I was in, um, because I mean, that's what was best, but also in that relationship, it was really hard to chant too, because 
um, this person that I was in a relationship actually like laughed the first time that I chanted in front of him because I think I was going to bed and I was like, oh, I have to do my evening prayers. And so I was like chanting and then he was like laughing and I was like traumatized because I was like, oh my gosh, I've, I've chanted in front of tens of my friends and, you know, brought them to meet and I've never in the five or so years that I've practiced had this happen. And mm-hmm. so I stopped chanting a lot when we were together because I was like, this person's going to laugh at me. And one of my friends noticed, um, she was like, are you still chanting? She was like, you're not, you don't really like share Buddhism as openly as you used to. And I don't think you're chanting. Like one of my best friends who does not practice <laughs> noticed this about me. And I was like, man, I am miserable. And so, yes, th- thankfully I had the courage to leave that relationship. And um, yeah, the member support uh, really helped to reel me back into meetings, um, supporting other people, because really we think in the, um, or sometimes we think that when we're supporting other people, we're there to encourage them and give them guidance and um, help them use this practice. But in reality, Whoever I was visiting or supporting encouraged me tremendously um, because I think in this practice, one of our goals is to really help other people become happy and in turn, it does allow us to be happy. And so I think that really helped me get back on track with my practice. Once I left that relationship, I was able to start chanting more regularly and more confidently um, and That also, that time period helped too with grief because it does just take time to um, kind of Mm. start to get over that pain. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. Um, Yeah, and so I'm I'm wondering, you know, we've talked a lot about... um, that kind of there's three elements of the practice, right? There's chanting itself. And then of course there's the community. Um, But study is also a really key component of Buddhism. Um, And we've talked a lot about the first two. And I'm wondering, like in this journey, was there, were you reading or studying anything? Um, And was there anything I imagine, you know, for me personally, the times when I'm like, I don't want to chant, maybe I should chant, but I'm not chanting right now. I end up reading and like that encourages me. You know what I mean? So I'm wondering like, yeah, what was that component like for you? And then has anything um, helped you sort of navigate that entire process? Yes, definitely. So I was constantly reading this book called Discussions on Youth, um, which is like a collection of Daisaku Ikeda's works. And so there's a chapter called What is Love? And so I'm constantly reading this chapter. It is completely underlined and bookmarked and highlighted at this point um, because I was constantly seeking, you know, what is the right way to be in a relationship? All these different things. But what I came to find out is that this chapter helped me so much in my grieving process because I'm not dealing with a relationship per se, but he talks a lot about self-development and how you really have to have a strong sense of self in order to even be in a relationship, right? So um, Mm. if it's okay, I I have like one specific area. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So in one part of the chapter, Daisaku Ikeda says, 
it is crucial that you become strong. If you are strong, even your sadness will become a source of nourishment and the things that make you suffer will purify your lives. Only when we experience the crushing, painful depths of suffering can we begin to understand the true meaning of life. Precisely because we have experienced great suffering, it is imperative that we go on living. The important thing is to keep moving forward. If each of you uses your sadness as a source of growth, you will become a person of greater depth and breadth, an even more wonderful you. This is the harvest of your pain and suffering. And so this quote from What is Love in Discussions on Youth, um, I think just sums up what I have felt my whole life. You know, why was I born into a family that is just um, exposed to so much mental health and addiction and anger and fighting? And why have I been in these tumultuous relationships where I feel like I'm constantly questioning myself. And it's like throughout life, I feel like I'm always just trying to prove myself to who I don't know who. (laughs) Um, And then it's like, this happens where, you know, my best friend leaves forever, right? Like at my brother. And so I realized that all of these bad things, I can either sit here and, you know, just dwell on life for the rest of my life and, um, you know, whatever that would look like, or I can overcome these struggles to the best of my ability with this guidance, right? Like using this suffering to really transform myself um, because the reality is so many people are struggling and with personal things and their life that we may not understand. I feel like um, it actually what you mentioned at the very, very beginning uh, of of sort of like starting to chant about things and then somehow the practice just opens like a much more profound perspective on life itself. Um, it feels like, yeah, it's it's exactly that process. Um, and you said you're 26 now? Yes. Yeah, like it's wild. I mean, to have like that level of life experience and realization still so young, you know, um, it's it's really profound. I think many people would benefit from, from hearing that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm just wondering like now, you know, it's, it's, 2022 so much has happened I'm sure so much more than you can even share you know like along this journey um but what do you feel like your internal sort of breakthrough has been like if you had to really define it and then what do you want to do from here yes so one of the hardest parts about Channing after my brother passed Um, was the fact that in our prayers, there's a portion where we like ring this bell for those that have passed. And so every time I came to this, I was like, I don't want to chant because I don't want to face it. I don't want to ring the bell. And so recent, like, I mean, really recently in the last six months to a year, we started talking about uh, this poetic existence, you know, what is your poetic existence? Kind of like, what is your bootability? And so I had this like revelation of, um, that kind of this idea that suffering really can, 
kind of propel you forward um, in life and with yourself and helping others. And so all of a sudden I was like chanting in front of the Gohansen and it just, something in me just kind of clicked of where I was just crying. And I was like, I need to continue living for my brother and I need to continue being happy for him. Um, and there was a guidance that I had received at one point too, where she had said um, something along the lines of like, your brother can feel um, when you're sad, but he can also feel when you're joyful, you know? So, you know, please go that way if you can. And so I think of this that, you know, we always hear like, oh, you know, he would be so happy to know that you're doing well. And it's just that I think gave me such a piece of comfort, just knowing that no matter what, um, I need to continue striving in the way that I was before he passed. Um, now I need to continue to be happy. And so now when I come to that point in the prayers, I don't feel that way anymore. I just ring the bell for him and move on. <laughs> mm. um, so there's a piece of guidance in one of our publications, like Living Buddhism. In the section, it's talking about life and death. And um, mm. so this portion says, the bonds we share with family and friends are eternal and indestructible. Even if only one family member practices Nichiren Buddhism, the power of the mystic law is such that their benefit will permeate the lives of all their deceased family members and relatives. And so I think this piece too also has really helped me um, moving forward because now that I can chant again, um, it's really been helpful for me to think of him in a lighter aspect. Um, and so as I mentioned, you know, really striving as I was before, um, now since I actually won an award at work um, of where I was like one of the top 50 estheticians out of thousands in the country within my company. Um, and that moment for me was like, you're still doing your best right? Like mm -hmm. you can still overcome hard things even after what you've been through. And then um, I got into a relationship with somebody who loves me in ways that I didn't know was possible. Um, we just bought our first home together. And it's just like life can go on when you are able to overcome hard obstacles. <laughs> and so I think just looking forward, I still struggle with grief and I still struggle with missing him immensely. Um, but it doesn't end here, right? Like it's, it's not the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely hear what you're saying. And that that passage that you just shared about life being eternal. I was thinking exactly that as you were as you were sharing. You know, I think especially for people who are new to Buddhism, like um, obviously we don't have time to really get into it all. It's very profound. There's a lot one can read about it, but the kind of core characteristic of life in, in Buddhism is that it's eternal, that like this, this lifetime is not the end of life itself. Um, and also that all life is interconnected which is why, you know, really chanting, like just just like you described, you know, for, for the people that we love, whether they're here physically or not, it 
it really does work. <laughs> and it's so hard to explain unless you've really experienced it and started to see it kind of manifest in your own life condition and your own daily life. Um, but thank you for sharing sharing that. So um, I wanted to ask, because I when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned that you're now pursuing psychology, which is a kind of new career path. And I'm wondering how on this journey you ended up there. How did that path sort of open and what your dream is for the future? Yes. So as I uh, said previously, I am kind of late, late to the game sometimes. Like I was uh, more like 18, 19, 19 or 20 when I got my driver's license instead of 16. Um, and now I'm like an adult student rather than going to college right outside of school. Um, so I have been a licensed esthetician for the last eight years, um, but my dream has always been to practice in clinical mental health. Um, and so I went out to California and explored some schools, Arizona, and ultimately I decided to stay in Ohio because at the time my brother got really sick. And so I thought, I don't want to be out of state if something were to go badly. And so I stayed in Ohio and um, it wasn't until after he passed when I said, okay, I need to make this dream a reality. Um, and so I started my first semester um, in 2019 and it's taken me a lot longer because I am a part-time student but I will uh, get my undergrad in psychology and then go pretty much straight to grad school um, in order to practice as a clinician. Mm. That's amazing. So I will ask my my final question which is how we always end the show um, and that is for one piece of advice uh, that you would give to someone who's listening who might be very new to Buddhism, but might um, have had a similar experience to you or, or you know, is just really in the process of um, grappling with having experienced loss in some way and then, you know, what to do, how to move forward. Um, so, yeah, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone, what would you say? Oh, wow. I think my advice would be really so cliche of just like to never give up, you know, really challenge yourself, you know, whatever you think that you can't overcome or whatever you think you can't do or you can't reach, you can. And it's time to try like you can't you can't know that you can't do something or that you're not good enough or you're not you don't know any of those things until you try um, to overcome them right and you'll see that it's not those negative self-talks are not the truth and you can create whatever reality you want for yourself moving forward so just trying and don't give up until you see the results i think that you're seeking I was so moved by Hannah's story because despite the devastating grief that she experienced, with time and her Buddhist practice, she was able to develop a sense of purpose and meaning for her own life through it all. Sometimes experiencing profound loss can leave us feeling like we'll never find a way forward. But through chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, we can continue to deepen our relationship with our loved ones, even after they have passed. On this, Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda writes the following, which I'll close with today. In the Buddhist view, 
the bonds that link people are not a matter of this lifetime alone. And because those who have died, in a sense, live on within us, our happiness is naturally shared with those who have passed away. So the most important thing is for those of us who are alive at this moment to live with hope and strive to become happy. By becoming happy ourselves, we can send invisible waves of happiness to those who have passed away. Also, just a reminder that if you're new to Buddhability or want to get connected to your local Buddhist community, you can always email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.